You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. More than 7,000 people have taken refuge in Maui hotels following the devastating wildfires. So what's the plan to get them out of emergency shelters and into more permanent housing? HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us in studio to talk about an important looming deadline. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So there's about 29 hotels and hundreds of short-term rentals across Maui that are housing these 7,000 people who lost their homes in West Maui. And these temporary hotel lodgings have become hubs for the Red Cross, nonprofits, and community groups to provide wraparound services. And that can be anything from meal delivery to medical care. And they're also providing mental health support, reunification services, and casework. The deadline to sign up for this temporary housing through the Red Cross is this Friday, September 15th. And sign up is available for those on Maui and for those who found short-term options on Oahu or other neighbor islands. It'll also help in the future to help with long-term housing needs, even if that's somebody who isn't in one of these hotels or Airbnbs. So Diane peters one is the regional CEO for the Pacific Islands region for the Red Cross. She says typically they help to establish these non-congregate shelters, which includes the hotel rooms, and then the Red Cross shifts to a shelter resident transition program, which helps directly with affected families finding the best housing options for them. We are actually now looking forward to, you know, looking into planning for the long term, and we know that this, the recovery is going to be a long process, and we're committed to being being on Maui and being available and continuing as many of these services are needed uh, for the long term. So we uh, are connecting with uh, partners such as Hawaii Community Foundation and the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, Papa'ola Lokahi, and a number of other um, community organizations and um, government partners to to think about the best way to continue these these services and make sure that they're available for anyone who who did suffer um, losses with the Maui fires. And the Red Cross is contracted to be here until at least May 2024. And when I was talking to Diane on Monday, she asked, I asked her what a timeline or model for housing after a disaster would look like. And she says it's difficult to tell right now. And she shared this saying from the Red Cross. If you've seen one disaster, you've seen one disaster. And additionally, um, I'm learning that um, each disaster has has different phases. So it, it's really hard to say to look at, for example, I deployed to um, uh, Super Typhoon Mawar in Guam in the aftermath of that. And we had shelters open on island, you know, literally for months afterward to try to find that next housing solution for the folks that were affected by the Super Typhoon. And so each, each um, disaster is going to be different and each stage is going to look a little bit different. Um, we, we already know that there were folks that were precariously housed. Maybe they were homeless before the disaster and um, that they, we've already begun discussions of um, partnering with, with Maui organizations that, that are uh, much better able to, to work with those individuals. So it's, it's going to take um, a lot of work, a lot of partnerships and, um, and time. You know, it's interesting. I just I tried to reach out to contact a FEMA PAO, and she said she's still in Guam. So months later, you know, mm-hmm. they're still boots on the ground. So, yeah, every disaster is different. Every disaster is different. Every timeline is different. And looking here now, the state, county, and FEMA have stood up a joint housing task force, and that includes stakeholders as well as the Red Cross to discuss housing options. This is separate from the governor's emergency proclamation on housing and specifically addresses what's happening in West Maui. Governor Josh Green said eventually the 29 hotels will be consolidated, but there aren't very specific plans at this time. Um, Another idea has been to convert short-term rentals like Airbnbs to long-term housing options. So Green says a variety of housing options are required because people have different needs as well as qualify for different aid. There's going to be the hotels and Airbnbs, right, for anybody that we can get into them. And that will be most of, of the population. The Kauhali we build, right now there were 165 individuals that were homeless Uh, in the region before the fire, and we've been taking care of everybody. Those individuals qualify for almost no programs, unfortunately. None of, they didn't have housing, they didn't have a rental. So 
for them, we're going to stand up some Kauhali, okay? That's a universe of up to 165 people. Now there's another amount of housing that we have to begin to prepare for, and that's uh, temporary housing that's much more substantial, that people may want to live in very long term. For the Kauhali tiny home village idea, uh, they may end up on land on Maui, but not in Lahaina. And that's kind of been the messaging from the state. And there's been different community groups and others who have been a- trying to establish tiny homes and on farms and other swatches of land elsewhere. And Green says the funding for some of these housing projects will come from the federal government. It'll just take a while before that happens. There are pieces of land not in Lahaina, because we're not going to rebuild anything in Lahaina, obviously, for a significant amount of time, not only because it's impossible, because the people of Lahaina have not yet told us what to build. But in and around Lahaina, there may be some need for temporary housing. We can do that. The way it works with FEMA is for those who don't have any insurance, for those who have costs that are unmet, they will provide a huge grant, a huge grant. Uh, usually it's after a year and we've gone through four months of meetings and that will determine how much money we get and how much we can build. And I'm expecting that to be well over a billion dollars of housing monies, but time will have to tell. So that's where we'll find certain parcels of land and I would like to build those sooner rather than later because after 18 months it's not totally clear that we'll have ongoing resources for people. So as soon as I get the green light from FEMA, I'm going to start those conversations. And I would like to see us build you know, 500, 1,000, 1,500 units of some sort if the community will have them. This has nothing to do with the emergency housing proclamation or the homeless proclamation. It simply has to do with disaster recovery and what FEMA can offer. So at this time, it's pretty essential for as much to be done through FEMA as possible because a lot of it will get reimbursed. And on Friday, uh, Governor Green was talking about getting more reimbursements from our congressional delegation who's been traveling to Maui and doing these different hosts and visits for other members. And Green also announced late last week that he authorized about $100 million worth of temporary assistance for needy families or TANF money across the state. And between 3,000 to 4,000 families are qualifying for that. Yeah, I mean, it's just going to be so complicated, such a major undertaking. And we were already in a housing crisis before, but Mm -hmm. boy, there's so much work ahead. I know later this week, Governor Green said that he will be extending the emergency proclamation on housing and that they will be moving forward despite uh, the chief housing officer, Nani Madero's, her resignation or announcement that she'd be resigning this month. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how they regroup and how they move forward. But yeah, certainly a uh, oh, big task ahead. Uh, but thank you, Sabrina. Thanks, Catherine. And I want to thank you because I know you're headed off to a, a, another <laughs> adventure on the mainland. Uh, but we just want to thank you for all your work here at Hawaii Public Radio. We will miss you. <laughs> uh, you're a hard worker. and, and uh, But thank you for uh, all that you've done for our community. Thank you, Catherine. I really enjoyed uplifting our community voices through the last year and a half. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. We have been talking to Sabrina Bowden about the housing snapshot and a critical deadline for those displaced in the Maui wildfires. reality check today looks at how to prevent another wildfire tragedy. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today to talk about firebreak. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. So we need miles and miles of firebreaks, don't we? We do. We do. Um, so, you know, in light of um, everything coming under the microscope with all things wildfire in the uh, wake of the tragic events in Lahaina. Um, the, the the people who have been working in this realm uh, have renewed their calls, uh, calls that they've been making for years, frankly, um, to put in more prevention measures so that, you know, tragic events such as what happened on Maui on August 8th don't occur again. Um, so, yes, they're renewing calls. So, I mean, while, of course, Hawaii already has 4,300 miles of fire and fuel breaks, 
um, which can also include roads, um, they estimate another 350 miles are needed to fill holes in the network. And it's not easy putting in these fire breaks. I mean, we're talking kind of crazy topography out there. Absolutely. Not only are they working with crazy topography, but they're also working um, with regulations that make it quite difficult to um, put these things in place. So if it's state land, you know, you need to go through environmental, cultural um, and uh, historical uh, kind of consent processes uh, to make sure, for instance, that there might not be any uh, human remains, EV or, you know, cultural resources where you plan to put these things in place or important natural resources. So what's ended up happening on state land, at least, is that the Department of Land and Natural Resources, their forestry workers, um, have really actually been forced to only be able to put these fire breaks in place during active fires uh, when some of those regulations are kind of thrown out the window. So instead, they have a dozer scout, as they call it, who leads a bulldozer through an area um, and makes sure that they're not hitting anything um, of import. Um, so, yeah, at, at this stage, that has kind of ended up contributing to what um, Mike Walker of the Division of Forestry and Wildlife told me is an ad hoc network. So those holes really need to be filled. Yeah, and we're really talking um, a lot of the invasive grasses uh, that have just, you know, taken over the landscape, right? I mean, the, those grasses were brought over by the by the cattle industry, I think, to feed cattle, but uh, it you know, and then we've got sugar, right? A lot of lands are fa- are fallow, and so it, it is a problem. Yes, of course. I mean, the, the prevalence of invasive grasses is certainly an issue, and while, of course, ranchers brought in some of uh, those types of grasses, also, as, you know, the, the uh, nursery industry, um, some of those plants are ornamental, um, such as fountain grass, which is known for being a real great form of tinder um, that I believe that was brought in by the nursery industry quite a few years ago. Um, so it does pose an issue really when creating these fire breaks because it's not necessarily you just cut down the landscape and leave it. They have to be actively managed and that of course comes back to funding for um, the Department of Land and Natural Resources uh, so that they can have enough staff to be able to maintain these fuel breaks but then also on top of that uh, it requires a great deal of coordination between private, federal, county and state landowners to be able to build these fire breaks in a way that doesn't necessarily think about the properties so much as it thinks about the entire landscape so that it can protect landscape scale kind of um, resources and communities. Yes, and, and I know that uh, you've talked to landowners that are using uh, animals to, you know, keep uh the grass is down, right? Uh, and 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 if it's a, you know even a matter of having the the cattle graze uh, just to maintain the landscape. Absolutely, that's that's something that uh, a lot of people I've spoken to have said is you know while of course we can mow the ground and we can do X, Y, and Z with herbicides, perhaps the most sustainable means is really actually getting grazing animals on that land or in those kind of areas so that. You know, you can cut down those grasses, manage it, and then you know a nice little payoff on the on the other side is that Hawaii has more of a local food supply. Um, but then again, that also requires fencing and staff, and it requires um, really making sure that there's some incentive there for whoever has the animals to take their animals there and graze them in those kind of places right, well, to do those targeted grazing. And we'll see you know, what the lawmakers come up at the legislature. But thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Kevin. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Group International, presenting Brazilian songstress Bebel Gilberto, live at Hawaii Theater, September 21st. Ticket information at hawaiitheater.com. Could artificial intelligence replace hundreds of millions of jobs in the not-too-distant future? The next coming decade could be the best decade that we've seen on Earth, or it could be one of the worst. So how will people be able to make ends meet in a world with fewer jobs? Well, we'll explore whether the rise of AI could be the best argument yet 
for universal basic income. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. Today, a group is gathering on Molokai, like it does every first Tuesday of the month. It's to support those who have lost a loved one to suicide. In recent years, Molokai saw a spike in cases among young people, and today we draw attention to Napuuvai. It's dedicated to improving Native Hawaiian health equity and disparities for the people of Molokai and Lanai. The Conversations Russell Sobiono got a chance to talk with the executive director and medical director, Dr. Lan. You know, when we talk about suicide prevention, I I think many times there's an effort to call attention to the issue and to promote mental health services and resources. And I think that's all very important. But I also think that one aspect of this issue that is often overlooked are the people who have lost loved ones to suicide. Our participants go through a lot. And, And if I can real briefly touch on the different types of prevention because our support group does address a few different aspects of prevention. Prevention can be broken into three categories. There's primary prevention, there's secondary prevention, and there's tertiary prevention. So primary prevention is about developing coping skills in individuals. It's about developing a sense of resilience. It's about having a sense of meaning. It's about having a strong sense of identity. And from a Hawaiian perspective, it's about having an identity rooted in culture, about knowing who you are as a Kanaka and where you come from. Secondary prevention is more clinical. That is the screening for depression and suicidal risk. It's about the clinical interventions that maybe a clinical psychologist may be providing someone who may be contemplating self-harm. And then tertiary prevention is about preventing future attempts in an individual who has had a prior attempt. It's about providing support to those individuals who have lost a loved one due to suicide. And there is not a lot of programs and support out there that addresses that particular aspect. So that is the reason why we wanted to really focus on that last piece, because that is where the healing needs to take place. So this support group is intended to be a space of healing, a space where people can come to feel heard without judgment in their journey of healing. And one of the the themes that our team has identified as we embarked on this journey of launching this support group is that the grieving process is very complex and everyone grieves in their own unique way. And it can take months, it can take years, and it can take an entire lifetime. So we have participants in this support group who are at every stage of that spectrum. And there are some some common manifestations of grief that we see in our participants. The first of which is guilt. The hurt is not having a chance to see the warning signs, to not have an opportunity to provide someone who's suffering with the much needed support that they need. We also see isolation, and I think this one is in some ways amplified in a community like Molokai because it's already a very isolated community. It's very difficult to get in and out of the community. It's a very small community, so it can already feel quite isolating. Having peer support, having a space to go to, having someone who you can tell your story to does help provide a sense of connection. We see a lot of depression 
as you can imagine. And then the last thing that I, I might share is a difficulty finding acceptance within many of the participants that come to our support group. Denial is a well-known stage of grief and having the ability to accept that this cherished loved one in their life is no longer going to be able to communicate in the flesh, at least within this realm, can be a very difficult thing to finally come to a place of acceptance, which is an important part of the, the healing process. When you mention isolation and you mention some of the, the emotions that they're processing, especially depression, does it increase the chance that they may take their own lives? Can one suicide create a snowball effect? Yes, the evidence very much supports this. And that is a reason why this particular support group doesn't just address tertiary prevention. It also prevents some of the potential risk factors that survivors of suicide loss face. When we look at the different risk factors for suicide, there are many. There is an underlying mental health challenge, substance misuse, family history of suicide loss. And if you are the mother of a child or the spouse of an individual, brother, sister, grandparent, suicide loss becomes a part of your family history. And that is most definitely a risk factor. There's chronic stress, there's recent life adjustments, there's changes in family structure, such as divorce and prior suicide attempts. And when you look at all of those individual risk factors, there is a common theme, and that theme is loss. And one of the reasons why Native Hawaiians and many other indigenous populations are at higher risk is because there is much more loss than everything that I just described. When you understand the social, cultural, and historical determinants of health, Native Hawaiians have, as a people, suffered from tremendous loss. The impacts of the overthrow, the greatest human loss in Hawaii's history, the 90% depopulation between 1800 and 1840. We have a loss of land. We have a diversion of natural resources. We have military occupation. We have the dismantling of cultural practices and spiritual connection to who we are as a people. That is loss at a scale that is difficult for most people to comprehend. And we have layered upon that the social challenges, the difficulties economically to live in Hawaii, the difficulties finding jobs and to attain higher levels of education. We have political infrastructures that may not be the best advocates for addressing all of the historical and cultural determinants. So hopefully I painted a picture for you why we see these disparities in suicide and many other chronic and social conditions rooted in a lot of this historical trauma that continues to persist and makes our work so important. Suicide prevention requires coordinated efforts at all levels of society, like, like you've said, from communities to families down to individuals. As part of Napu'uvai's mission, you ground your health services and programs in Native Hawaiian culture, practices, and tradition. How can we blend those ideas together to help as many people as possible contemplating suicide? So the antidote is connection. It's about identifying and leveraging the strengths. It's about helping every individual find their place in society so that they can contribute to their families, to their communities in a meaningful and impactful way. It's about finding connection to others. It's about finding connection to the powers at be, however you define them to be. It's about strengthening our family units. It's about having peer support and community resources that empower and inspire. And lastly, it's about hope. And if we look at the science of hope, there are three aspects. 
there requires a belief that tomorrow and the next day and the next month and the next year can be better than today. The second element is the belief that you as an individual possess the capacity to accomplish a better and brighter future for yourself, your family, your community. And then lastly, hope is about developing a plan. It's about creating a network within a community. It's about working with individuals and families to build that resilience and to create all of the environmental components that help to strengthen an individual. It's about helping them find who they are, why they're here, and how they can contribute. And again, lastly, going back to this program that we have offered, we are creating a space to create hope. And one of the plans of the survivors could be to continue coming to our support groups, to spread the word about the work that we're doing so that we can create some momentum and we can just be another piece in the much bigger network that requires us to all cuckoo. This is a collective effort because this challenge that we face is so complex. And we need to all figure out how we can plug in to this collective effort to create a thriving community. Dr. Opunui, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Landon Opunui of Molokai's Nāpu'uvai Native Hawaiian Healthcare System, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. Hello, this is Sabrina Tavernisi, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look at the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from the Arne and Ruth Werchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arne and Ruth Werchick Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Library's Kona at folkhawaii.com. Scientists diving out near Curie Atoll have found a type of red algae that is said to be new to science. It's apparently starting to form mats on deep and shallow reef systems in Papahanao Makuakea Preserve. And no one's real sure what to do. We talked to Brian Houck, who's a research protection specialist with NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. It was first discovered in 2016. That was at Monavai or Pearl and Hermes Atoll, which is two atolls below Curie or Holaniku. So that was 2016 where it was found there, but up at the northernmost section of archipelago, that was in July of this year, 2023. And so what do we make of this thing? Well, it's being termed a nuisance algae because we're not sure if it's an alien species or if it's endemic to the area and it was just growing cryptically and we've never seen it before. So it's new to science. It was recently described in 2019 and published in 2020. So because we don't know where it's from, you can't identify it as a non-indigenous or alien species. And the term invasive typically implies that something is alien to the area. So we don't know that. That's kind of our hunch that it's doing that because it is acting invasively the way it's growing in map formations and smothering the coral reef habitat. But luckily for Holaniku or Curie Atoll, it's not growing in that abundance yet. It's just kind of cryptically present at most sides of the atoll. So if something was invasive versus indigenous, I mean, you would have to 
come from a vessel that's out in that area drifting somewhere? Yeah, if I was to speculate, I would think marine debris would be a likely culprit for how it's moving around. Marine debris moves all around the Pacific Ocean and it seems to accumulate within Papahanaumokokea. So it's quite likely that something could have hitchhiked that way from an area of the world where this algal species grows and sync with the ecosystem. But now it's been introduced somewhere else and it's growing invasively and kind of wreaking havoc on the ecosystem. So that's a speculation, but that's where I would kind of lead to think it came from. And then is this a particular type of algae, a particular color? It's a, a new species to science. So chondria is the genus, tumulosa is the species name. And it has a variety of pigmentation depending on where it's growing, what depth it's growing at, where it's located within the mat. It can be anywhere from like a dark purple to kind of a light yellow color, but it's typically, you know, green in coloration, but it is a red algae. So it's in that family of marine algae. Recently, we did something about some invasive species that were found in the deep water in Pearl Harbor, you know, where it's dark. And they were trying to figure out how to deal with that. Would they smother it to kill it off? Because it's the kind of thing where if you try and remove it physically, you know, it breaks off and then it just kind of multiplies. Yes. Interestingly enough, I'm working on that Pearl Harbor project as well. I'm part of that working group. That's a soft coral that does typically reproduce by fragmentation. And ironically, this algae can reproduce the same way. So it can reproduce asexually by fragmentation or sexually. We believe that most of this is producing asexually. So by fragmentation, which can happen during like large storm events and wave events that can kind of rip these mats up and redistribute them and allow those fragments to be carried, you know, down current and resettle and grow again. But not knowing where this algae comes from, it's hard to know everything about its life history. So we're trying to study more effects about the depth ranges, which it can grow at. We know it can go down to at least like 80 feet now, which is pretty deep for a red algae like this. And it can grow up in the shallows up to you know, right at the tidal mark. So it's very versatile and where it can grow. And it's very plastic in its ability to morphologically kind of change what it looks like depending on what habitat it's growing in. So how did you folks discover it over there on Curie? I mean, did you have divers out and they just said, hey, what's this? Yes. So we were on a, a research trip to look specifically for this algae. And we started in clean areas where we didn't think it was present. And we were using a new tool called environmental DNA or eDNA, where you take water samples and you look for DNA signatures of this algae. And it's a way to early detect, you know, if something has inhabited a place. So we were doing those experiments anyway, or those water collections. And then we were surveying by physically putting divers in the water. And that's where we located it at Ho'olaniku with divers physically in the water, you know, searching the coral reef. And is there anything that is being threatened specifically by this mat-like algae? Pretty much anything on the benthic habitat has the potential to be outcompeted, overgrown, smothered, and killed. So it can form very thick mats, you know, eight or so centimeters, so several inches thick, and it pretty much cuts out 99% of the light that's penetrating through. And then that restricts water flow and nutrient exchange, all kinds of things like that. So it's a threat to pretty much the entire reef ecosystem. And once this algae can form these thick mats, you know, it takes away all the nooks and crannies, all the pukas that the fish and inverts and other things like to live in and makes kind of like this carpeted monoculture of this algae. So eventually the reef starts to die, breaks down, and then as the reef breaks down, you lose this kind of complex 3D structure that you've got there, and it, it turns more into just a rubbly reef covered in this type of algae. So, yeah, it has potential to completely change the habitat in which it gets introduced. Is there anything you can share with us about where it was first discovered in the other place? Yeah, it was first discovered in Manavai, which is Pearl and Hermes Atoll, so it's a little bit further towards the main Hawaiian islands and the archipelago. 
and it was first found in the northeast corner and then later over on the western side. So where it was found at Kwaihalani or Midway Atoll was also in that north-northeast corner. So it seems to be, if you were to speculate, that's the predominant direction that the trade wind blows and any debris or things that are moving into the reef area are typically driven by those trade winds. So that's typically the area we have found it in the past. And after a few years of going back to survey for it, we've now found it pretty much on all sides of the atoll at Manavai and also inside the lagoon area. So it spread pretty quickly from at least 2016, most likely it was introduced much sooner than that, because by the time you're able to detect it with surveys and things like that, it's, it's probably been there for a while. So if I was to guess, you know, it's been at least five years prior to that. It always amazes me, though, when there is a new species that's unknown to science, right, that made this discovery like, wow, this thing has been out there and nobody knew. Yeah, it's amazing how much we don't know about our own planet. Now, we know a lot more about the, the moon and things than we do even the bottom of the ocean. So there's lots of stuff out there to still be discovered. Yeah, that doesn't mean that it's not an alien species. It just means since we've never seen it before that we don't know where it came from. and We, we can't clearly identify it as an introduced species until a source location is determined. Is there anything that we can do with satellites you know, because I know that's being used. Arizona State University has been doing some stuff off Kona. Yeah, that's a good question. We have been able to utilize satellite imagery to, at a minimum, identify like areas of interest. You can see dark spots that show up on satellite imagery, and then you can use that to kind of pinpoint where you can go and survey with actual divers. It's hard to determine from a satellite image whether or not that's the actual species. You can kind of identify that it's an area of interest, like I was saying, but the speciation part still kind of takes divers to get in the water and, you know, put their hands on it and look at it or collect it and identify it through DNA. But remote sensing such as satellite imagery is a great way to kind of monitor, you know, the potential spread of this algae and identify areas of interest to go back and further survey. And so what do we do now, now that you put the word out, like what's our next step just to keep monitoring? Yeah, from a management mm -hmm. uh, aspect, this area in Papahanaumokoke is so remote that all we can really do is try to isolate the algae to these atolls and develop best management practices and SOPs to keep from spreading it other places through our activities. But it really serves as a great example for the public on how important it is to not spread alien species. You know, we talked about the Pearl Harbor soft coral earlier and speculated that was introduced by an aquarium release where somebody dumped their fish tank into the water. So, you know, a great learning lesson for the public about these things, even though we might not be able to do much about chondriotumulosa up in the monument and it doesn't feel like it's in our own backyard, there's applicable lessons that can be learned around the main Hawaiian islands to not, you know, spread other alien species by cleaning off your anchor and equipment, you know, in the place where you use it before moving to another watershed and things like that. So at this point, we're just trying to contain it where it's known, learn more about it, and, and keep from spreading it inadvertently to other places through, through human-based activities. That was Brian Hauk, uh, Brian Hauk with NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. He was talking about a type of red seaweed, new to science. It was found in the Marine Preserve seven years ago uh, near Midway. It is now turned up near Curie Atoll, and it's starting to create a thick mat. And scientists fear it will smother life on the reef and spread to other areas in the protected waters in the northwest Hawaiian Islands. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Foodland, celebrating 75 years of food, family, friends, and aloha, extending a warm mahalo to their customers. Foodland.com.
all you fashionista fans out there, Paris Fashion Week gets underway at the end of the month. Here in Honolulu, an upcoming event hopes to capture some of that spirit of all things French. We recently had French uh, Consul General uh, Guillaume Maman and his wife, Teresa, in the studio to talk about a fundraiser for Alliance Francaise of Hawaii coming up at the end of the month. Yes, so uh, the event that's going to happen uh, on September 29 is a fundraiser for the Alliance Francaise of Hawaii. Um, the Alliance Francaise was um, started in Paris in 1883, so uh, the, the, the organization has been in business for quite a while, 140 years in Hawaii. We uh, started in 1961, uh, so over 60 years, and the mission is to share and promote the language uh, history, art, and spirit of France by ways of cultural events, French language classes, uh, social ga gatherings, culinary experience, and much more. We did a uh, few months ago, actually, a concert uh, where we brought uh, Mark Merkin from uh, the East Coast, a legendary pianist, uh, and uh, he was playing French composers such as Ravel, Debussy, etc. So we have a lot of uh, lot of gatherings, uh, a lot of French classes for children as well, uh, and for adults. This is a, a good organization, so this event promotes uh, and will help uh, fundraising for that organization. Okay, and Teresa, you're helping to organize this. So. Yes, <laughs> yes. So actually, you know, we sat down and we thought, what are the best things that come out of France? You know, when people think about France and going to France, what is it that they always say they like? Well, it's the French fashion. Paris Fashion Week is a big thing. And the French food and the French wine. I don't think I've ever had a bad meal <laughs> or a bad wine every time we've gone to visit. So that's where we kind of came up th with the idea of putting together the French fashion food and wine event. So this year is the first year that we're doing that. And then this will be actually during a fashion week? Yep. So, so the idea, it's, it's actually right in the middle of the same week as Paris Fashion Week. So, you know, not all of us can travel to Paris for Paris Fashion Week. So we thought, why not stay here in Hawaii and experience the best of French fashion, food and wine right here in Hawaii? Okay, so this takes place on the 29th of September and it's going to be at Bloomingdale's. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and so tickets are on sale right now um, on our AF hawaii.org website. People can find out more information um, by going to the Alliance Frances website for it. Um, at the event, we have lots of fun things planned. Um, when guests arrive, they'll receive a Four Seasons French Passport to Luxury game card, which will um, give them a chance to stop at various stops along the first and second floor of the store and receive gifts. Um, at each of these stops. And the, the, the stops are all French vendors, by the way. I should back up and say that. So for example, like our first stop, you're gonna see Moet um, and get a glass of champagne. <laughs> and then on to um, YSL and Sicily and Dior and all these places, all these little stops will have a little something for everybody and then take them up to the third floor of the store where the entire third floor is dedicated to the actual event. They'll be able to taste wine from all different regions of France, and they'll be able to have classic French food that's being prepared by one of our celebrity chefs that's French trained, and that's Chef Vikram Garg from UMI, who's gonna be there. We'll also have a crepe stand, so people can try crepes. And then there'll be a formal runway fashion show at a part in the, um, the event. So. so it really sounds like a lot of fun. And Guillaume, I know you had talked about, gosh, a few decades ago, we had an event in Waikiki with all the French designers, right? Yes, yes, it was called the French Festival, and uh, it was organized with uh, all the uh, luxury French boutiques. Uh, Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Chanel uh, were part of it, and uh, it invited all the people in Hawaii, and a lot of visitors as well, since it was done in Waikiki, to experience French fashion here in Hawaii. So uh, we, we are recreating a little bit of this uh, spirit uh, with this uh, event of French fashion, food and wine. We just added 
regarding uh, something that I really love is food and wine to, uh, <laughs> to fashion. <laughs> yeah, so how does that work? So then the department store just kind of shuts down and you go in and work your magic? Actually, the department store will be open so people can still come in and shop on the first and second floors. It's only the third floor that's really shut down. But, you know, um, attendees will be able to kind of wander through the first and the second floor to stop at their passports. And also, too, attendees will be receiving a $25 gift card at Bloomingdale's so they can shop right then and there as well at the event if they like with their gift cards. But the third floor is completely closed off just for attendees. So they'll need their little wristband to, to be able to get up on the escalator to get up to the third floor to really experience the French food and the French wine and see the show. Okay, and what about French music? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have, we'll have music, we'll have a DJ there that is going to be playing um, music that kind of presents the vibe that we're, we're going for. Like if you experience it, you know, um, like a, a Buddha bar or a Cafe Del Mar, which when you go to a Europe, those that's what you kind of hear and experience. So we really kind of want to make it a night like they feel like they're they're actually in Paris if they're yeah. not in Paris. Mm -hmm. And you might know when you folks have events, a lot of these things do sell out because you have lots of supporters in the community. Yes, thank you. And we have a lot of members at uh, our Alliance Francaise of Hawaii and we invite uh, members and non-members as well, of course. So they do sell out very quickly. Uh, I remember that, uh, unfortunately, Bastille Day, for example, this year sold out extremely quickly. Uh, this is one of our gala that we do every year for July 14, Bastille Day. And uh, other events like the concerts that we have, we have uh, Beaujolais Nouveau uh, events as well. When we're bringing uh, Beaujolais wine, we have a rosé event. As you can tell, uh, we uh, put a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, good food and good wine at the Alliance Francaise, <laughs> along with culture. And then we have a lot of cultural events as well. Um, we have Immersion Day, where we bring people to speak in French uh, on a certain subject. I remember I was invited to one of them, and I spoke uh, about my uh, native city of Paris in French. So if people want to learn a little bit of French, and it's it's really at all level, I have to say. Uh, we have different type of uh, classes and discussion groups. But to answer your question, yes, it does. Um, we book those uh, those uh, events fairly quickly. So uh, if people want to go and get their tickets, the sooner the better. There is a cap because the, the store can only hold so many people. And, and again, um, there's lots that are being planned in into this event. We've, you know, we've, we've got gifts for everybody and, and the gift cards and whatnot. So there is a cap on it. So I would recommend anybody who's interested, please go to our website, afhawaii.org as soon as possible to buy their ticket and reserve their spot. Yeah, and, and I know that, uh, you know, Fashion Week is, is top of mind because we've had several of our designers go over there to present their fashion. So it's really pretty exciting to see uh, folks make their mark there. Yeah, and I think people probably will be very surprised to know how many French designers are actually in Bloomingdale's. You walk through Bloomingdale's and you don't realize. I mean, we know, obviously, YSL and Dior and Sicily. Those are very common French designers. But if you go up to the second floor, Maj and Sandro and the Couples are all very popular French designers in France right now, and they're going to be featured in the show. And a little interesting fact that I didn't realize this, my husband and I noticed this during the summertime, we noticed that Maj and Sandro always have stores right next door to each other. And I'd asked our Bloomingdale's rep, why do I always see Maj and Sandro together in store storefronts next to each other? If you're in London or wherever you are, you kind of see them together. Turns out they're sisters. They're two French sisters, but they've got two very different styles. And, and that's why they opened up their own stores and they have their own designs. And in the couples, um, they're, they're completely different too. So we will have men's and ladies wear okay. in this show. So this is not just a ladies only kind of event. So we want to really encourage the men to come too. I think they'll enjoy the show. And of course the the food, obviously, my husband said it. The food and the <laughs> wine. <laughs> okay, and and an event to dress up for. Yeah, <laughs> a <Yes>. good excuse. <laughs> and to come back to what you are saying, nothing makes me happier than seeing the local uh, designers going to Paris and do so well in Paris. Uh, we see more and more of them uh, being appreciated all around the world. Uh, I think that's something that's wonderful that uh, Hawaii is becoming a hub for fashion as well. And I think that's the reason why people will come to our event because. Uh, 
it's becoming more and more of a uh, fashion forward type of uh, public that we have here. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming down here. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. And also too, just to throw this in, we will have a silent auction. And on our silent auction at the event, we are putting some items on the silent auction aside that the proceeds of those particular sales will go to help Maui Wildfire Recovery yes. Relief. We think that that's very, very important too. The Alliance Front has really wanted to be a part of helping Maui recover. And so that's this was a, an event that we had pre already planned, but we said, how can we take this event and try to use part of this event to help Maui? And, and so we will have that in the silent auction. And so guests will be able to see that as well. All right. So they can uh, uh, help Maui. Help Maui yeah. as well. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. It's always right. a pleasure to be here. And that was Guillaume and Teresa Maman, the team behind a French food, wine, and fashion event that kicks off at the end of the month. It's to raise money for the Alliance Francaise of Hawaii. portion of the proceeds will go to Maui Relief. We'll have a link on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that wraps it up for us. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from former Senator Roz Baker, who, like so many, lost her home in the wildfires and could have lost her life. Are you a wildfire refugee and sheltered in a hotel room? Share your story. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation segment on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.